1: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Degena Doerr, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we're talking to Dr. Fabio Rambelli about his uh, recently published volume, The Sea and the Sacred Aspects of Maritime Religion, published by Bloomsbury Academics in 2018. Dr. Rambelli, thank you so much for being on the show again.
0: Thank you for having me again. My pleasure.
1: Um, I wonder if we could begin the interview with some self-introductions. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in the maritime aspects of Japanese religion specifically.
0: Um, okay, so I, I work on Japanese religion and uh, intellectual traditions, mostly on the pre-modern period. And um, I'm interested in issues of... Um, Signification, you know, how people made sense of uh, things, made sense of reality, made sense of texts. So I've always used a, t- a kind of um, interpretive approach uh, to my to my work, and um, particularly, you know, I'm particularly fond of semiotics or or some, you know, uh, lineage of semiotic of semiotics. And um, so this is what I've been doing. I've been focusing on issues of materiality, you know, again, what is, how people in Japan, in pre-modern Japan, made sense of specific objects, what kind of practices they created to deal with objects, not only to use them, but, you know, like to uh, sanctify them, or to deal with them in a way that goes beyond the, the immediate the immediate uses uh, of, of objects. And so Within this uh, this framework, um, uh, the sea and you know maritime aspects of Japanese religions came uh, uh, almost um, I don't know kind of spontaneously. I always wonder, you know, okay, I I was born in a place, uh, you know, in Italy near the sea, so I'm much more fond of the sea than on than on mountains. And this is kind of a silly question, perhaps, you know, a silly. A silly way of looking at things but you know i always wonder why does everybody in japan working on japanese religions um focus on mountains when they have you know so many beautiful beaches they have you know the sea all around japan they have thousands of islands and again everybody talks about mountains you know know, sacred mountains mountain religion shugendo and all that um so um you know another part of what I've been doing you know, for for many years now is trying to work on issues that are little covered, little discussed uh, by by other scholars or by scholarship in general. So I you know I've been trying be, trying to carve my way, you know, in the field um, like around questions that are considered like standard or, or obvious, right or normal, perhaps. And identify topics that are little studied, but still, I think, relevant for the study of, for the understanding of, of the religiosity of the Japanese. So the sea and the maritime aspects of religion is one of those.
1: Thank you. Yeah. And you also have a chapter in this edit volume on the semiotics of uh, boats. Right. So we'll be talking about that uh, very soon. Yeah. Um, and this is a very unique volume, right? edit volume on the sea in Japanese religions. Um, and it's featuring a really diverse group of scholars, um, you know, who study Japanese religion and also culture. Um, so I guess the question is, what brought these scholars together to participate in this edit volume?
0: Well, this, this is kind of a pet project of myself. You know, I've been working on it for several years before, the, before the, the, you know, I was able to actually edit the book. And, uh, you know, I was like trying to find sources, find uh, scholarship and um, what I realized is that, first of all, there is no equivalent volume in in, uh, in even in Japanese. You, you do have studies about um, um, the sea and religion, but it's mostly about certain gods in certain regions of Japan. So they don't really give you like a general sense of the impact of you know the, these maritime aspects in terms of a broader perspective on Japanese religiosity. They tend to be studies about like local practices. Which uh, I think is not very helpful at this particular um, stage, you know, since we know very little about, you know, the whole thing. But but I can I can come back to the to the local aspects of, of maritime religiosity, you know, maybe later if you're interested in this. So so what happened is that after I looked around and I saw that there's very little published on maritime aspects of Japanese religiosity, but at the same time there is a lot that needs to be discussed. So I sent out invitations, feelers, you know, to friends and colleagues. Um, In different countries, and um, the response that I got was very kind of uh, was nice because uh, most people told me, "Oh, that's an interesting topic. Never thought of it." I said, "How come you never thought of it?" I mean, Japan, Japan is an island, right? You know. Yeah, but uh, so so that implies that again, it's not obvious, right? You know. So what we assume about geography is not necessarily. Uh, obvious about culture or cultural assumptions um, in general. So most of the people I contacted were very enthusiastic about this project. So we organized a conference um, at the University of California, uh, Santa Barbara in 2016. It's already four years ago. Can you believe it? And um, And they came and we had this very great time And uh, we decided to put all the papers together. Of course, you know, there was a process of editing. We tried to make the papers more like talking to each other, even though they were all talking about different uh, specific issues. So you will notice that there is, or I hope that people will notice that there is a significant overlap uh, with all these uh, chapters, even though, like I said, the topics are different. But this is the, you know, how how this project uh, happened and how the book ultimately happened.
1: Yeah, very exciting. Um, and in the introduction, right, this is something we kind of already talked about. Um, you point out that we actually know very little about Japanese conceptualizations of the sea, not only in religious thought, but also in cosmology and pre-modern scientific discourses. And also in addition to that, what we do know about um, Japanese religion is highly continental and landlocked. Um, and this is rather shocking to learn, like you said, considering that Japan is literally surrounded by the ocean, by the sea. Um, so why is this the case?
0: You see, I've been struggling with this and I don't think I have any specific, uh, any definite answer. I think there are different factors at play there. Um, and I think what, you know, the two points that you mentioned, you know, the the little we know about Japanese conceptualization of the sea, like in cosmology and scientific discourses, right? Uh, premodern scientific discourses on the one hand, and the way in which many Japanese see themselves or have seen themselves, you know, as um, like turning their their, their backs to the sea in a way. I think that these two aspects are are related. So um, for some reason, um, well, first of all, the the imperial court, because a lot of the discourses about religion that we have, you know, Japanese religious studies is basically focused on Kyoto and Nara in, in Kansai. Right. And and those places are certainly landlocked and far away from the sea. And uh, and the court, uh, the imperial court, which in many ways, even today, uh, is at the center of uh, scholarship about modern Japanese religion, has this kind of uh, repulsion uh, for the sea. And uh, so that sense, I think, that you find in original sources was, you know, ended up being indirectly absorbed also by scholars. So scholars, you know, this is something that I, you know, I became more and more convinced when I was working on this project, is that scholars tend to be, tend to identify themselves with their sources, even though if they have a critical approach to them, but still, you know, they, for some reason, you know, they, they identify themselves with them. So, uh, so a lot of us really kind of take the position of the, of the arist- of aristocracy and they don't question, you know, why is the sea so repulsive to them, right? They just take it for granted. Now, so this is one aspect, and the the fact that you know the emperor is a descendant of gods that come down from a holy mountain, you know, you know on the sky. A lot of um, Japanese conceptualizations about identity were based on rice agriculture and rice cultivation. Um, this comes from China, by the way. It's part of the you know the. The structure of of the Chinese Empire, right? You know tributes are based on agriculture and rice. Um, and that kind of transferred into Japan uh, with exceptions, but still became you know the, the the main part of taxation. It became main aspect of of conceptualization. And this is more important in the Edo period than in the in the in the Middle Ages. It's clearly so. In the Edo period, everything is because is about rice. And uh, in the Middle Ages, you have much more fluidity, and uh, like sea offerings, for example, uh, are much more important than uh, than in the Edo period. I mean, uh, sea um, sorry uh, tributes uh, coming from uh, uh, from sea products are more important in the Middle Ages. So, so I think we have a confluence of factors. Um, you have uh, uh, the, the the central government that sees itself as kind of uh, landlocked because of the, <laughs> of the discourses that were available to it, basically, right? You have Confucianism, you have Buddhism, and all of these are religions or intellectual systems that are based on a continental um, geophilosophy, let's call it this way. These are not uh, philosophies or worldviews of uh, travelers, of seafarers and um and that has influenced i think the development of uh uh, of uh, the study of japanese religions as a whole Uh, as a whole also because it is related to the way in which many many japanese see themselves uh in fact it's interesting that if you go to japan it's very hard to see the sea you know in any in any in any big city for example or if you see the sea there's always some kind of industrial complexes you have like tetrapods you know, placed on the beach, there seems to be this kind of profound uh, hatred <laughs> of, of, yeah. the, of the coast and the sea. You have like, uh, you know, beautiful coastlines being spoiled by, by railways and, um, and nuclear centrals and, uh, and um, highways, for example, right? And you say, why there? Couldn't they build it somewhere else? So, so so there is this very deep ambivalence i think towards the sea and at the same time you also have this kind of interesting thing that the japanese say oh we eat fish you know fish is part of our own our own cultural identity rather than meat right but then say where does the fish come from you know who brings the fish to your table and uh, very few people know anything about fishermen they know anything about their cults about their their religious traditions And um, so pretty much it's really focused on the agricultural cycle based on rice cultivation, which is certainly not the calendar that uh, fishermen follow, right?
1: Yeah, this is very interesting. I mean, thinking about um, beaches in Japan, um, it almost seems like it's it's also a westernized product of leisure, right? When you go to the beach, but um, like a beach in the Japanese sense, Um, it's rarely kind of explored, especially in in tourism um, advertisements and promotions, which is really interesting. There's a lot about mountains and yeah.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Beaches. So first of all, most beaches are not uh, used. um, Again, I come from Italy. We have beautiful beaches and they are certainly used for tourist purposes and people go there for leisure. And they've been doing so for, for a long time, by the way. It's not something modern like, you know, again, the British, for example, started going to the beach in the late 1800s um, as, as, as a leisure. But, you know, in many places in the Mediterranean, that was not the case. I mean, it started sooner than that. And in Japan, I hear that in the Edo period, uh, going to the beach uh, was, in fact, one of the summer leisure that people did. And that changed dramatically with modernization. So, so the, the the sea becomes kind of the beach, you know, becomes this kind of useless land where they can build uh, factories on top. Also, because it's easier to carry, you know, um, uh, the products or the or the natural resources uh, needed uh, for industry. So there is a complex and uh, complete re- reconceptualization of the landscape. Um, so leisure uh, and go, like going to the beach for leisure. So the Japanese don't go. A lot of them don't go to their own beaches. They go to Okinawa, they go to Guam, they go to Hawaii. Even though they are beautiful yeah. beaches, but they are not really exploited. I mean, sorry, that's not a good word. They're not used. Uh, some of them have been kind of reconfigured in tourist terms, like near Ise, for example, in Miyazaki Prefecture, for example. You know, there are a few places that are trying to promote this type of tourism, but it's very different from what you see in the Mediterranean, like in Spain, Italy or Greece, or, or in Hawaii, for that matter. So again it's a very deep ambivalence that uh, is hard to understand in many ways and that's why I think we need more studies you know more more research on 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 this aspect because I think it's really crucial to understand uh japanese modernity and japanese culture even in premodern times
1: Yeah definitely that's a really great point um And before we actually discuss the chapters of the edit volume, um, can we maybe explain um, what the volume means by the sea and the sacred? Um, So what are included in the discussions of these uh, categories and what are excluded? Um, We were just talking about Okinawa and Hawaii, Uh, for example. Are these um, places, the Ryukyu Islands, also considered to be part of the um, ocean kind of cosmology of the ancient Japanese?
0: That is a very good question. And I must be very clear here that I decided, uh, perhaps unilaterally if you want, and uh, but to exclude uh, the Ryukyu Islands. Uh, the book is mostly about pre-modern Japan. There are a few references to modern Japan, because again, some of these things that happened before, some of them continue until today. But I decided to exclude Okinawa because most of the references that you find in scholarship today about the role of the sea as a site for religion or religious practice and um, see deities, for example. So so most of what you find today, they refer to Okinawa as as a prototype, you know, or like an archetype of uh, of Japanese phenomenon. But I couldn't see any connection, honestly, between what they do in Okinawa now and what they did in Japan in... uh, in the 1500s, for example, so mm, we can come back to that later because there is a chapter on Orikuchi Shinobu that, in fact, you know, problematizes this issue. But you know, you, you have uh, you have scholars that refer to Okinawa as a kind of um, kind of Japanese museum, let's say, a museum of Japanese past that is still present. It's a very Orientalizing and very derogatory view of, of Okinawa. And I didn't want to subscribe to it because, again, the kingdom of the Ryukyu is an independent kingdom. And, um, and again, the Ainu in the north, who have a different you know, relationship with the sea, that is also excluded from the volume because, again, that was not part of Japan uh, for most of the pre-modern time. So that's why you know I wanted to see the Japanese conceptualizations, not the post-Orientalistic and kind of colonial appropriations that the Japanese empire uh, did um, to 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 explain or to justify certain phenomena. I hope that this that this is clear. So the sea is really the sea as it is seen in uh, Japanese sources from the let's say the mainland, well the you know from Japan in premodern times and sacred. I I use this word because I didn't want to limit it to an established religion like Shinto, for example, or or uh, or Buddhism, and some new religions also have these deep connections to. To a mythology related to the, to the ocean, like um, Mahikari, for example. And, and again, I didn't want to, to have this kind of uh, specific sectarian concerns. I just wanted to present a broader picture because that's the impression from what I got from the sources. That I, get, I think it was a much more diffuse sense of some type of religiosity, sacredness related to the sea not uh, uh, necessarily sectarian discourses controlled by specific institutions.
1: Thank you. This is really clear. Thank you for the clarification. And we do see in the chapters, in the following chapters, um, there's a lot of discussions on um, very less known kind of practices and traditions mm. surrounding the sea. Um, and through this very welcomed edited volume in our Japanese religious studies, um, you're actually calling for new ways to reorient the intellectual directions in the field. Um, here I'm quoting you, you're saying that we need a geophilosophy of the sea, or rather, a Um So can you tell us more about this fascinating approach? Um, and how would a sea-oriented or sea-centered perspective help us understand Japanese religions in fresh ways?
0: <laughs> you see, this is a kind of a manifesto that, you know, needs to be accomplished uh, somehow. So I see this as a starting point. Something that struck my attention is that a lot of the descriptions of the sea are always like land-centered. So you find like important authors, like I think it was that Levi Strauss who says, oh, the sea, I mean, there's nothing out there. It's like that, that's the realm of uh, meaninglessness and insignificance. Or you find the sea is this big, like empty space where nothing happens, right? Uh, and, and of course, if you are intellectual living in Paris and you go to the sea, you know, only a couple of weeks in the summer on the beach, not even in the sea, then uh, that's what you may think, right? But if you are a fisherman or, or a sailor, then you have a completely different idea. I mean, you can identify... I mean, the the sea is full of messages, is full of signification, right? From the temperature, from the currents, from the directions of the sea, from the movements of the fish. You can tell a lot of information there. So if you live closely related to the sea, then the sea is a different space, and land maybe it's more obscure and meaningless in many different ways. So this is the argument that I was trying to bring about. That, like I said, that we tend to look at the sea as uh, land-based uh, people who think in terms of geography, right? And, uh, and I think we need to shift our conceptualization and place ourselves not in, like I said, in geo-philosophy, but in talasso philosophy right? Because then geo is still the earth, right? And uh, the land, and uh, Thalassa is the sea. And uh, place ourselves in the sea and try to... St- try to look out and see what we what we what we find and and very few people have tried to do that honestly and and i see that there's the argument you know you cannot live only of uh, you know out of sea right you need uh, you need uh, what carbohydrates and therefore you need probably some crops you need some stuff but at the same time, you can be pretty much based, you know, centered on the sea and rely less on, uh, on products from, from, from the land. And, and, whereas the the alternative is possible, right? The, the, you can be completely landlocked and have nothing to do with the sea or fish and, or sea products. Right. So I think it's really a different, a different dimension, but it, I think it is an important one that needs to be explored. If, only because of the change in the perspective that he gives us, right? So, like I said, instead of focus, taking for granted the land and you know uh, and the philosophy and, and the conceptual system based on land, place or you know try to place yourself in a in a shifting, you know, fluid uh, context, which is no longer land; it's bec- it becomes the sea. And what kind of sensorial universe would we, would you be exposed to? What kind of a system of meaning would you be exposed to if you did that? And how would that change our interpretation of the sacred if you did that? These, these are the kind of a conceptual hypotheses that I'm trying to, to explore you know, to an extent in the book. And I, I would like to, to get it going. You know. I would like a lot of other people to work on, this, on, this, on these subjects and see, like I said, what, what kind of new perspectives can, can, can be generated. I think we deeply need new perspectives on things at this
1: particular time. Thank you. Yeah, this is very exciting. I can definitely see, you know, how this idea would open um, a lot of new doors in different fields, not just in Japanese religion, right? Because no, in no. even in Mongolian uh, studies, the studies of the Mongol Empire, there are scholars who are also trying to um, incorporate right, the maritime into the Mongol Empire. Mongolia, you know, traditionally has been Probably one of the most landlocked regions in the world, right? Um, far, far away from any kind of coastal region, but the sea and the narratives of of the ocean is, is very much there. Right? There's pearls, um, there's corals. Um, these things are high, highly valued, which is really interesting. So I think you're really pushing towards a kind of exciting um, territory there for a lot of different fields.
0: Yeah, well, I hope so. You no, know, going back to what you just said, you know, even in Tibetan Buddhism, you know, of course, the sea is an important metaphor in Buddhism, right, as, as a metaphor for the mind. But I wonder what you know, the sea and the waves and all that, and I wonder what kind of meaning it would have had for people who were living like thousands of kilometers away from the <laughs> from the sea and they have never seen it. Again, there were no documentaries, there were no movies. It was just perhaps some visual representation, right, some paintings. And try to bring that, you know, give that metaphor to a, to a, a, a fisherman or a fisherwoman, right? And when they tell you the mind is like the sea, their understanding would be very, very different, right? So, <laughs> so yeah, the sea seems to be present in many different ways. But again, the, the meaning and the depth of the experience associated with that imagery is certainly different. And they would like to explore it. To explore those differences and and the richness of like the signification that that could bring uh, uh, about.
1: Yes, and as we will see, right in this edited uh, volume, we have a lot of chapters kind of doing these really exciting explorations into this uh, new realm, I guess, right? So part one um, of the edit volume talks about the sea myth, right? The ancient sea myth and rituals and also um, their reinterpretations. So here we have four chapters covering different legendary narratives and also related rituals from ancient Japan. Um, So the question is, I guess, how was the sea understood in these ancient Japanese myth and how did people respond to them?
0: Mm. The the impression that we get from scholarship and which is reflected in these four chapters is that okay, this is my interpretation of what what, of what I what I see. But is that I think the the beginning of Japanese mythology and perhaps the beginning of uh, like a pre Japanese polity was centered on the sea. You find the, you know, first of all, uh, the two creating creator gods, you know, they create Japan out of the sea, right? It's a coagulation of the drops of the ocean. That's how Japan was created. It's not land. I mean, they create land out of the sea, out of water. Um, so this is one aspect. And then you have some of the most ancient deities that are mentioned, you know, at any length in the oldest part of the, of the Japanese ancient mythology are sea-based. Uh, deities, and uh, and their clans, you know, the, the, the clans that worship them, are seafaring um, uh, people. So I think that you, you clearly see that, and then there is a transition at some point, which is not very clear how that happened and why, but you see a transition between this kind of sea-centered polity and conceptualization of the sacred to a more kind of uh, landlocked um, uh, vision. And that probably translates, you know, from the um, movement that seems to have occurred, you know, in ancient Japan. Um, so the polity which was originally in northern Kyushu or maybe in western Japan, you know, the area between, let's say, Fukuoka to Izumo uh, today, right? That part. So that is the beginning of Japanese mythology and the early polity, and then. Uh, a couple of perhaps a couple of centuries later, you have the formation of the Yamato, so-called Yamato uh, polity in central Japan, and that is a landlocked place. And then you see a transformation again of uh, of uh, mythology. You have different uh, different gods that uh, that uh, enter the narrative, and you have this establishment of a new polity that is not centered on the sea right so so i think that this is kind of so what we mentioned before about you know the transition or the duplicity that we find in japanese culture and about the sea and also the fact that the sea seems to have a less and less important role you know if you look at the history of japanese culture well you you can probably see the beginnings of that in the in the early mythology and in the transition between a western Japanese polity to a central Japanese polity.
1: Thank you. And can you give us a few examples of some of these sea myths and rituals um, from the chapters?
0: Well, um, so like I said, Japan was created, um, you know, according to the mythology, obviously, by this kind of divine, um, sorry, uh, heavenly gods, um, was created out of the ocean, which, by the way, generated, this idea generated all kinds of, you know, multiple interpretations in the Middle Ages, you know, to make sense of why, you know, those two gods were churning the ocean right there, trying to find what. So this is a very productive image that continues to be elaborated upon for, uh, for a millennium. So this is one example. You see also the, the importance of sea offerings in Shinto in particular, but, you know, to an extent also in Buddhism. Uh, Like all kinds of fish and seaweeds and sea-based products are in fact a central aspect of uh, of the Shinto liturgy. You cannot have any Shinto liturgy, you know, liturgical offerings without uh, sea-generated products. Of course, then they add sake and they add rice. Again, sake is a byproduct of rice, but 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 again, the sea. uh, and the fish is central, and that probably is an indication of the early diet of the <laughs> of the of the Japanese. Something that continues until today, right? So even the Buddhists were adamantly against uh, killing, uh, you know, taking life. They were ultimately uh, allowing fish to be caught and be and fish to be used as offerings in the in the in the. Uh, in the temples dedicated to lo- local deities that uh, the Buddhist temples controlled. So the role of sea uh, food offerings for the kami, for the gods, is uh, central in the understand- for the understanding of Japanese religion. Of course, in some mountain shrines, you have offerings that are based on meat, right? So you have deer, you have boar, but those are again, they seem to be exceptions and they seem to be later developments because the, the oldest stratum of, uh, of the mythology, like I said, it seems to be based on, on the sea. Then you have all this other, this other important um, aspect, I'm talking about the chapters now, but that the sea is a duplicitous uh, realm already in the ancient mythology, because that is the place where um, demons come from, and demons bring uh, pollution, they bring pol- impurity, they bring um, disasters, And so the ancient Japanese state established, um, like, how can I say, defense ritual, defense outposts in the um, outlying islands surrounding the main uh, main islands. And that's where some special, some particular ritualists were located and they were performing rituals to avert, you know, these dangerous uh, demons coming from the outside. At the same time, it also implies that the sea was central for the protection of Japan, and the sea was incredibly powerful if you have these powerful forces coming in and out of Japan, right? And then you also have to consider that the sea, like I just said, is the place where the most important offerings for the gods come from. So the sea is not only the place where the demons come from, but it's also the place where the sustenance of the gods and the people uh, come from. So you can see the richness of the of the, you know, symbolic system that is, is um, based on, on the sea. And then there is a chapter that talks about one very unique island in Japan. It's, a, it's an island that is a god in itself. It's called Okinoshima. It's uh, off the coast uh, of Fukuoka in Kyushu. And uh, there are cults around, in, uh, around that island or based on the island dating back maybe to the 3rd, 4th century, um but again the focus uh, the importance of that island kind of shifted away um 6th 7th 8th century seems to be the when it was the most important and that is the time of very frequent travels between Japan and and the continent and gradually the importance of the island kind of diminishes when sea routes or you know trading routes and so forth move away from northern kyushu to to other parts of japan so again islands are not only like places in the middle of the sea but they're also in some cases they are gods uh, themselves that require particular attention particular care and a lot of ritual action and again this is something that starts in the very early in the in, you know in in what is now japan and kind of seems to be fading away in favor of a focus on mountains as the site of the sacred
1: Mm, thank you. Um, and speaking of divine presences, right? part two kind of reveals more about uh, sea-related or maritime deities in Japan. Um, and here we have five maritime cultic traditions uh, in pre-modern Japan that are actually little known even today right? in Japan. Uh, specifically, the chapters cover uh, maritime deities such as Ibisu, Empress Jingu Shinra Myojin and also Hachiman, as well as Shugendo's relationship with the sea. Mm. Uh, Please tell us more about these traditions. So what roles did these maritime deities play and uh, who were the people that interacted with them? Were they mostly fishermen or also people kind of from the cities like Kyoto and Nara?
0: Mm. Again, that's another interesting question. Thank you for... (laughs) Um, this is, in fact, a very challenging question, because one of the aspects that we encounter with maritime deities is their, how do you call them, like multifaceted nature, that sometimes the, the same deities play a role on, you know, on land, but very often they play a different role um, um, on the sea. And, and so, for example, Ebisu, Ebisu is, you know, the, the god of merchants in, in pre-modern Japan, it's the god of wealth. But for fishermen or fishing communities, Ebisu is also the god of fishing. And uh, whales in particular were considered to be embodiments or manifestations of Ebisu, uh, coming from the other world to offer their bodies for the sustenance of the communities, of whaling communities, right? And and the spirit, you know, after killing the whale, the spirit would be returned to the invisible world, but the, the community was able to sustain itself, you know, by eating and flesh of the whale and and by trading uh, other byproducts of, of the whale So Ibisu, in this sense it is a, uh, the god of wealth but it had a very specific meaning for whaling or fishing communities and there are different types of cults dedicated to Ibisu pretty much all over all over Japan. it's not very clear it starts somewhere uh, near Kobe apparently. And, uh, and it becomes important in the 12th, 13th, 14th century, and it grows exponentially in the Edo period. We don't know exactly why and when this particular deity, um, and by whom you know, it, was, it was created and, and, and why. But, but in, in Japan, I mean, that is another phenomenon, that we have new gods being created all the time. Some of them, you know, what uh, Miyata Noboru, the anthropologist, called the uh, Hayarigami, right? The fashionable <laughs> uh, gods. And some of them uh, are fashionable only for a limited amount of time and then they disappear and others become really, really important and they keep being worshipped. And there are several cases of them. Ebisu might be one of, you know, an early case of this kind of uh, uh, fashionable kind of Hayari um, gods, right? Um, Empress Jingu is, well, uh, is known in sources, not as a god, obviously, but as a kind of a shamaness and uh, and, uh, and a ruler, And uh, we see that later she becomes part of the Hachiman triad. You know, she's the mother of Emperor Hojin, who is the earthly form of the god Hachiman. So um, Empress Jingu becomes part of this kind of sacred uh, complex uh, surrounding Hachiman, who is probably number two most popular god in Japan today. But again, most people today don't see Hachiman as a sea-related deity, which in many cases he was. And so it is important to see how this kind of female component, you know, the Empress Jingu, is related to the sea and also bring this kind of a sea-based component to the to the Hachiman cult. Uh, Shinra Myojin um, um, is, um, is a Korean deity which was worshipped in Heian period, Japan and later, uh, probably under the influence of some kind of mountain deities from uh, from the from the continent and so you have an interesting in, interconnection here because it's uh, it's a foreign god that becomes native nativized in Japan um, there is an interesting connection between the sea and the mountain and uh, and is worship not on the sea but in a mountain area near Kyoto I mean that is the the center of this deity which again is kind of interesting. I think, and it points to some important connections between mountains and, um, and the sea. So Hachima, like I said, is, um, is intrinsically related to the sea, but not many people are aware of that today. And Shugendo, as we all know, is uh, you know, the general name for mountain worship, mountain religion in, uh, in Japan. is something that starts very early, probably around the middle, like the 13th century. And, um and it's based on mountains but but we also see um, some groups of shugenja of yamabushi of you know this kind of mountain asceticists uh mountain ascetics who carry out their practices near the sea or in areas overlooking the sea and uh, some scholars have kind of tried to investigate whether the sea plays a role whether the the Shugendo practice near the sea is different from the Shugendo practice, you know, like in mountain areas. And um, there are different interpretations about that. So the chapter here remains kind of ambivalent about it. But perhaps um, something that we should consider is that Shugendo is a form of asceticism based on practices that you can carry out specifically in mountains. We don't really have an equivalent of... Um, um, groups of people carrying out asceticism by the sea, or nothing comes to mind unless you think about particular communities of fishermen, um, where you know they go. For example, they, they swim in the sea for for Oshogatsu, right, the New Year's, and, and that is a kind of a, like opening up the sea. It's a kind of a purification ritual. It's a kind of a challenge, you know, because you you swim in the cold in the cold water and you try to overcome. Uh, the elements. So I wonder if something like this could be considered a sea-based form of asceticism. But again, this kind of asceticism never reached the, 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 the systematic complexity that mountain-based asceticism reached with Shugendo. And it would be interesting to explore why. And honestly, I haven't found any indications, uh, you know, as for the reason why this happened. But, but I think it is important, I mean, so again, in this, in this case, I think it is important to, to change the perspective, right? Because again, there are a lot of practice, like I said, swimming in the sea in, the, in, in winter um, for ritual purposes is a form of asceticism equivalent in a way to like um, the takigyo, right? You know, um, uh, practice asceticism under a waterfall in winter in the mountains. So it is equivalent, but it's not a systematic which again points to an aspect of sea-based religiosity, which is the lack of systematicity, is the fluidity, is the fact that there is no central authority. Maybe that's one of the reasons why it was kind of ignored. When Japan needed a you know, strong authority, then sea religion was not helpful. In fact, it was countering you know, the authority of the emperor and the shogun in many ways. So perhaps, you know, um, the answers to the questions that we had at the beginning can be found in specific cases, you know, like like this one, you know, can find hints that point to a larger, larger reality.
1: And this gets more complicated when Buddhism is added to the mixed, um, which is sort of the center of attention in part three of the book. Um, and this chapter or this uh, section is entitled Buddhism in Japan in the Global Ocean. Here we have actually three chapters discussing the Japanese views on Buddhism and Buddhist cosmology. Um, so the question is, how is Buddhism, a foreign religion that arrived in Japan from beyond the sea, incorporated into the indigenous maritime traditions of Japan? And also, how did Buddhism in Japan understand itself in relation to the global ocean?
0: Here, again, we need another uh, shift of perspective, because, again, if we Keep assuming that Buddhism, again, is a landlocked religion and um, based on mountains, which it was in central, India, central North, you know, northern India where it developed, right? Um, and then it comes to Japan and it becomes the center of, you know, mountain religion or the most important temples are built, you know, away from the sea, you know, that is the perception that we have today, then uh, then you see no direct relation between Buddhism and the sea. But then if you, if you begin to ask different types of questions and say, you know, wait a moment, what happened? I mean, Buddhism comes from across the sea, so there must be some kind of symbolic meaning there, especially since the cosmology of the ancient Japanese at the time in which Buddhism came in, right? That ancient cosmology assumed that there is like... Um, another world across the ocean where all kinds of things are coming from, right? And those things are, like I said before, they could be demons, but they're also wealth, you know, uh, life-sustaining um, stuff that comes from, from across the sea or from the bottom of the sea. And Buddhism is one of them. So there is a very interesting episode, a very early episode in the history of Buddhism in Japan, when uh, when one clan begin to Worship a clan which has strong connections to the continent. They begin to worship uh, Buddhism, right, and and they worship the statue. And then the other clans become suspicious of uh, of this newcomer, this new god, right, from abroad. So they 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 seize, they destroy the temple, they seize the statue, and they throw it back in the harbor of uh, Naniwa, which was the the capital at the time. And so you wonder, why did they throw it, you know, why did they throw it back in the sea? Um, Was that like a throwing place? Was that where they threw their trash? And so, so, but but you see, you you have to think about, so the sea was the place where all the pollution and all the impurities are taken, first of all, right? You know, the Nakatomi no Harae, which is one of the most ancient Shinto uh, liturgies, uh, Shinto rituals of purification, which dates about, I think, in its original form, about the same time, like the, the sixth century or so. You know, it clearly states that all the impurities, you know, flow away into the ocean, where there are deities that take care of them, right, and then purify uh, these impurities. So the the fact that they throw away this dangerous new object, you know, this statue into the ocean, was certainly related to that to that mythology. It could also be related. This has been argued by some scholars that you know the Japanese were trying to return the Buddha where it came from since it came from across the ocean then they throw it in the ocean so that it go back <laughs> to its original place right and, uh, and stop causing you know uh, havoc in, in, in Japan at the time. So you see that you know each any action can be conceptualized in different way depending on how you know what, what is the, the system of reference that you that you apply and in this case I think it's really important to try to reconstruct the mentalities of the people that were doing these actions. So so again, the sea is the place from where Buddhism comes from, and you have all kinds of you know you have things drifting ashore, some, some logs, for example, like pieces of trees that are considered ominous and, and sacred and they are used to make some of the most important uh, Buddha statues still existing in Japan. So again, this is not an you know it's not by accident. They come from the sea, that means they come from, the other world, in a way, they were sent by the Buddhas or by the gods. So the sea becomes this very important place of mediation, I think, uh, in, for, for medieval Japanese. And so, that, so that's why I think it is important to try to re- conceptualize, you know, or to understand the conceptualization that the, that the Japanese did about the sea. And, and, and these chapters are trying to, to point to that, so that the sea is not a place of separation necessarily, but it's also a place of uh, connection it's a place that connects Japan to the rest of the world. It's a place that out of which all kinds of important things come, emerge, right? And those important things can be positive or negative, right? But still, they are important and people have to deal with them in a very careful way. And, and later on, then, when, when you have like um, seafaring happening on a global scale, you know, from the 1500s on, Right, um, you have the first world, uh, the first Western world map brought to Japan in the early 1600s. Actually, no, it's sorry, it's the late 1500s. Right, and and the Japanese begin to reconceptualize all that. And again, they see that the ocean is really the place where things and people move. And Buddhism becomes part of of uh, becomes part of it. Or or again, the role of Buddhism is again reconceptualized as this larger context. It's no longer at the point. It's no longer Japan, China, Korea, and India, but 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 it's really a global system in which uh, ideas and images and objects and people move, and Buddhism has to deal with that in. Uh, in, in very crucial ways. I mean, this is really the beginning of, of modernization.
1: Yeah, this is really fascinating. The sea or the ocean as a mediator um, and also as a sort of a place where ideas and different kind of new practices can be negotiated, right? It's quite interesting. Yeah, and in part four, um, the last part of the edit volume um, is called Interpretive Constructs. Here we have case studies on how Japanese thinkers um. Individual thinkers speculated about the nature and the role of the sea. Um, chapter 13, for example, offers a reading of the Ruizu Jingi Honen, a really critical text of the Ise Shinto tradition. And Chapter 14 presents a study on the modern author or thinker Orikuchi Shinobu and his sea related themes in his writings. So how are these individual interpretations differ from those that we have discussed so far? Uh, And moreover, how has the sea been interpreted in modern Japan? This is something that I'm personally interested in.
0: Hmm. Yeah, so I mean, these are are just two examples and uh, out of many that can be imagined or conceptualized or, or they need to be studied. But the like you said, the Ruiju Jingi Hongen is a is a crucial text of uh, medieval Shinto tradition. It's basically an encyclopedia, it's a collection, or maybe I should say a compendium, of uh, sources. Basically, so initially people would say, like, uh, for scholars would say, you know, this is what what is this? It's just a, a completely unoriginal. Uh, Collection of cita- random citations, right? Apparently, there is no no principle behind them, and then and then you start looking at it, and you see that um, that uh, this ruiji uh, this this um, ruiji jinki hongen uh, makes a couple of crucial interventions there. First of all, it tries to describe um, the origin of Isashinto and and the tradition there and the deities there, not only in terms of the ancient mythology like the Nihon Shoki and other commentaries, and not only in terms of Buddhism, as it was done, it has been done until then, but it brings a whole lot of uh, Chinese sources, and Chinese that are related to Taoism, medieval Taoism, And that really shifts the way in which the gods at this are conceptualized. These are no longer, you know, after this text, these are no longer um, like Buddhist versions of, uh, of local deities, or local versions of Buddhist deities, right? In the But they become really something that is more like global, international, and potentially non-Buddhist at all, especially if you bring this kind of, bring to the fore, this kind of uh, Taoist component, right? He also, and so, the, but the main inter- intervention of this particular chapter um, is that the author emphasizes how, again, these sources from China are selected to emphasize the importance of water and the sea in the ontology of the deities of Ise. Which, again, is something that people today don't think about. I mean, Ise is kind of landlocked, again, you know, it's surrounded by mountains and surrounded by, by forests. But Ise has is always been close to the sea and it's always been deeply related to, to, to ritual practices in the sea. So we can see that, um, um, that this medieval text is trying to maybe give ontological, cosmological foundations to practices that were existing at the time. But, but, but certainly the shift to, towards the water and the importance of the sea is crucial for this text. And it shows how, you know, to some authors at least were aware that the sea and water more in general cannot just be ignored in favor of something that is based on earth or, you know, mountains or fire or, uh, or other elements like we normally see in the in the in the in the study of Japanese religions. Now for Oriku Chishinobu, I mean Oriku Chishinobu is, is very, very important in many ways and it's been rediscovered in the last maybe 10 years, uh, 15, 20 years, but um because he's one of the two or three authors who really try to reconcept to reconceptualize and reconfigure um standard representations and understandings of Japanese identity. The first name that comes to mind is, of course, the ethnologist um, Yanagita Kunio, right? Orikuchi was partly his disciple, but he kind of uh, separated himself and he came up with a very different idea. So Yanagita is really the one who emphasized the role of the land and the mountains uh, for Japanese identity. Orikuchi was much more ambivalent. You know, he comes up with this this concept of Marebito, and uh, the Maribito are, again, they're not clearly defined, are kind of either people or deities or, in any case, entities that come from across the ocean and bring, like I said before, wealth and um, or danger to, uh, to communities in Japan. And, again, they... This, okay, like I said many times already, I mean, this is part of the conceptualization of the world in pre modern Japan, right? That the sea is the place out of which all kinds of things come. And uh, Orikuchi gives a name to these things and configures them as people. And he also tries to trace the. Um, Development of uh, Japanese culture from seafaring people who come to Japan and they get established on on land and they become more and more land based. But at the same time, they keep alive this memory or this vision of um, stuff entities coming from the ocean. So in this sense, Origuchi is kind of ambivalent because it's not clearly mountain or land centred. In his work, there's always this um, ambivalent presence of the sea. And um, to, going to to your last question, you know, the, the conceptualization of the sea in modern Japan, maybe I'm over, uh, over oversimplifying here, but there's really no such a thing. <laughs> mm, you, you don't see authors trying to come up with, uh, like I said, the geophilosophy of the sea, for example, in Japan. Um, which is kind of strange. I mean, there, there are there are plenty of elements if you if you look for them. Um, the sea is just a place that is there. Again, this, this sounds Eurocentric, okay, but think about a place like Monte Carlo. Monte Carlo really exploits the sea in, in the best possible way. Think about uh, Capri. You know, these are all places that are very famous in Japan, very popular. The Japanese, when they go to Italy, go to Naples and, you know, they walk the waterfront. There is no equivalent in Japan even Tokyo, Tokyo it was like Venice, right? It was it was a it was a port, it was a sea city, it was this kind of a permeable place between the land and the sea with canals, with uh, again with ports, with um, with the waterfront, with all kinds of activities. Even festive activities uh, happened in the Edo period. Think about. Uh, Kobe. Think about uh, Osaka, which was a port initially, right? Uh, Naniwa. Uh, Think about Fukuoka. All of these places have disappeared. All of these places have become continental cities. If you go to Sapporo or if you go to Fukuoka, the city looks the same. It's not that the sea has a different role there. And And then you wonder why. And then, you th- and then you look at the sources, you see that um, Sumiyoshi Shrine in Osaka, Sumiyoshi was famous for his beach and his, and his pine trees. If you go there, just outside of the entrance of Sumiyoshi Shrine, there is a highway, and then you have the train, and then you have the industrial area, and that continues for, I think, three, four kilometers, and then you have the sea. But there are no pines and there is no beach there, <laughs> right? So I think that this is, Clearly telling how many Japanese today conceptualize the sea. I mean, they don't. They really turned away uh, the sea, both in terms of urban planning and lifestyle. They have turned, you know, their backs to the sea, and they're facing, you know, towards the mountains or towards, you know, uh, towards the land, and. Um, and again, we go back to the original question. Like I said, we don't know why. Uh, we, we know that there have been um, several factors that might have been related to this. One is the fluidity and the fact that the sea-based religiosity cannot be used because of its fluidity and, and diversity, right, cannot be used uh, to, to, to solidify um, polity, especially like a centralized polity. Then you have the influence uh, on, from Confucianism, which is clearly based on agriculture and therefore not on the sea. And then you have, um, again, conceptualization of like danger coming from the sea, right? You know, you have foreign powers encroaching upon Japan in the uh, mid-1800s and early 20th century, right? So the sea becomes a place of danger rather than a place to to exploit and use. I wonder if all of the, again, we're talking about a complex series of factors that kind of determine how the Japanese uh, see today uh, the sea.
1: Yeah, I think that we still have a lot of things we can explore, definitely in this topic. And I found it interesting that um, Orikuchi Shinobu, like you said, right, he's very ambivalent to the sea, but he's trying to kind of centralize uh, water, right, this elemental thing as as something that's intrinsic, where that's really important to Japanese identity, which is maybe um, some of a, a modern shift.
0: Right. Yeah. But again, water and the sea would keep them. Distinct because water is one of the five elements, right? But uh, but uh, but the sea is not necessarily water alone. I mean, cannot easily be reduced to one of the five elements because of the of the of the uh, symbolic complexity there. And also, Orikuchi did, I think, a crucial shift that uh, again he's the one who focused on Okinawa to to justify his theory of the marebito and uh, And he thought that Okinawa, like I said before, was a kind of a frozen museum of the Japanese past where you could explore you know the ways of thinking of the ancient Japanese so Okinawa was frozen in the past, whereas Japan was modern in that sense it's kind of orientalistic and colonial and 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 so as a result then now. People in Japan, when they think about the sea and, and the divinity of the sea, they think about Okinawa. They don't think about Sumiyoshi, for example, or they don't, they don't think about Kompira, which are no longer sea-centered uh, shrines anyway, anymore, right? So Orikuchi opened up like an interesting line of inquiry, but at the same time, he also closed it up, you know, by focusing on Okinawa rather than... Than on uh, on on the reality in uh, in the mainland of Japan, I mean this is how I see it. But is a complex thing. Uh, you can probably you know explore it in and go different ways with him.
1: Yeah, in any ways, it's super fascinating. Um, and your chapter uh, is the concluding chapter, right? It's called um, Sea Theologies: Elements for a Conceptualization of Maritime Religiosity in Japan. Um, and it's the last chapter in the volume. Um, Here you're showing us the centrality of the sea for different groups and at different levels throughout Japanese history. What's really interesting here and what really caught my attention is your discussion of boats, uh, which you argue are important semiotic mediators between not only the land and the sea, but also between nature and culture and between this world and the world of the deities. Um, so please tell us more about your chapter, especially about the row of boats in Japanese religiosity.
0: Hmm. Thank you. <laughs> this chapter is an experimental chapter, and I would like to, you know, um, it would be interesting to me to hear what the readers think about it, because I try to bring together three different areas of discourse that are normally not uh, brought together. One is the um, like Shinto discourses about pollution and purification. So, so the first part of the chapter is about the, the Harae purification formula, which is the clearest you know, definition of the role of the sea. And I trace, so I see how that purification formula, in which, like I said before, you know, the sea collects all the impurity on land because there are deities that literally eat it, right? And see how that simple conceptualization in the prayer, you know, in the Nakatomi formula, was interpreted by different exegetes throughout the centuries. And I found four or five that are particularly interesting, and they try to make sense of who are those deities and why they eat the pollution and what happens to the pollution after it's been eaten. And so ultimately, you find an idea of a cycle that you know these deities eat the pollution and convert it into purity, and they return it to land. As purity, and then it gets polluted, and then it gets sent to the sea, and then the cycle continues. This is one possible way in which this has been conceptualized. But again, the sea becomes this important mediator, right? That, tr- that converts pollution into purity or dangerous stuff into good stuff. And, and here you have kind of a theological uh, basis for that. Then the second part of the chapter is about um, the um, boats. And um, so boats are, in many cultures, are, um, how can I put it, Um, very complex symbolic symbols, precisely because, you know, like you said, you know, they are between nature and culture. You know, boats are made out of wood, right? But it takes a lot of technology to turn a piece of wood, I mean, many pieces of wood into a boat, right? So um, it is really the application of technology, of human craft and creativity to raw natural materials that enables for the creation of, of boats. And boats are not simply tools, you know, these are really important. I mean, if a boat sinks, people die. If a boat is successful, then they bring wealth, they bring fish, they bring livelihood. So they are crucial tools and not like simple, you know, objects and tools that you know if they broke you can replace it. I mean life is a stake here with boats. So that probably increases the, the symbolic power of, of boats. So in Japan, there is this very interesting uh, image. It's called takarabune, you know, the treasure boats, treasure ships. And those are things that it's kind of popular, doesn't come from any particular tradition. is like a folk, if you want to call it, or <laughs> tradition, or one of those aspects of the religiosity without name, right? You know, that a lot of people seem to believe and it's not very clear where it comes from and so forth. And the idea is that you have these special boats carrying gods, the the seven gods of good fortune, again, coming from across the sea, bringing wealth and good stuff at the beginning of the year. This is something, uh, it's very, very popular today. Um, Again, it's not very clear when it starts. I try to trace here some of the possible lines of developments, but uh, it's very confusing, and it comes from many different places. What I found fascinating is that um, the boats of Admiral Zheng He, you know, in the 1400s, um, were called the treasure boats. (laughs) Because again, they went all over the world and brought back to China all these unseen uh, uh, treasures, right so I wonder if that contributed to the imagination of uh, treasures you know and un- unimaginable things being brought from across the ocean um and then and then um pretty much all Japanese boats that they can that I know of have little gods in them, you know, and those are protecting deities. That are enshrined in the boats, following different procedures, and those procedures um, differ according to the to the region. But basically, you have a male and a female. You have uh, um, you have symbols of good fortune. You have symbols of fertility and productivity that are kind of uh, encased, you know, within this little box that then is placed under the main mast of the of the boat, and uh, which implies that um, that the boat is a receptacle of the gods and that kind of justifies its importance and and the role of a mediator, right, between this world and the the world of the deities. This is something that we normally don't think about. But again, it is an important part of Japanese religiosity, and there are very few studies on this beyond, like I said, like um, ethnographers describing particular local traditions. But, but this is widespread all over Japan with, with variations of course so I wonder you know maybe boats do have this particular um, meaning as as mediators among different levels different orders of the real like like you said you know nature and culture land and sea this world and the other world in in a way that has no equivalent in any other object that they can think of can you think of anything similar to boats that that kind of mediate among so many different orders of reality?
1: Um airplanes?
0: <laughs> no, but airplanes, no, I mean, but they're not deified. I mean, come on. <laughs>
1: That's true.
0: I mean, I don't know, maybe they have a little shrine in the airplane, but I doubt. And 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 if it is so, it may it will have it will be based on the Funadama, on on the boat deities, I think. And are very variations in Japan—they're mentioned in the Nihon Shoki.
1: Interesting. Um, and I'm thinking about maybe animals like horses, and because they often can take on different forms and be deified, elephants.
0: Right, but they are not between different. I mean, it's not between land and anything else, right? They, they are. So, I mean. And and it's true. I mean, uh, horses need a different type of human technology to to control to master them. But they're not made by humans in a way, right? Whereas in the case of the boats, really have like humans creating them out of scratch, literally, or really changing nature into 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 the boats. Um, there is also another level that. Uh, it's mentioned in passing in the book, but uh, I don't make a big deal out of it. But it is, in fact, is the fact that you know the boats are made with the trees that come from. Very often, they come from sacred mountains. So that, that would add, you know, another layer of uh, mediation, you know, between the sacred mountains and the sea. So it's a different aspect, uh, two different orders of reality, right? We know that mountains in pre-modern Japan were off limits to most humans. Only few people, only the kikori, right? I mean, the tree cutters uh, who had a special permission. You know, they went to the mountains to cut special trees for particular purposes, and they took them down, and they were processed into cultural artifacts. So mm, it's a it's a yet you no know, different layer of mediation that boats have. So I think in that sense, I mean, they're kind of crucial and potentially very productive
1: to study. Definitely. And thank you for your answer on, on these questions. And this is this is just something that I'm wondering about. And I know that this Edo volume is, is pr- mostly kind of covering pre-modern Japan, but this is a question that I'm sort of uh, wondering about. And it would be interesting to see further discussions into this, right? So how, for example, the, the American black ships, right, entering the Bay of Edo at the time, right? How would these kind of Western conquests of imperialism, of colonialism, through the sea, right, via the ocean um, disrupts these kinds of Japanese conceptualizations of the sea and also how they kind of use the ocean also in other ways to to conquer or make conquests um, in other parts of the land, right? And also thinking about the, the uh, Mongol invasion to Japan, that's also a, a story based on the sea. It's a lot of interesting things that just came out um, after reading this fascinating book
0: Yes, yes, absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, in the case of the back ships, I mean, uh, ultimately, Japan adopted the, the conceptualization of the ocean um, of the main Western powers, basically. Right. So that's why they start whaling in the, you know, in the faraway oceans. That's why they start, uh, again, conquering and creating this kind of geopolitics of empire. Uh, but that's basically a very different system than what they had before. So again, the transitions there you're right i mean it would be incredibly interesting to explore you know how these two traditions were kind of mediated and one perhaps overcome overcame the other yeah so I leave this to others i mean i i really look forward to reading you know uh, books and articles about these topics by by other scholars who can you know find more um, information than what i've been able to find
1: yeah it's really fascinating actually there's a lot of uh, new books coming out on maritime religion right on maritime buddhism and buddhist networks across these ocean spaces so it's uh, it's definitely taking a a turn there Great. Um, well, I think we've taken up a lot of your time. And before we finish our interview today, uh, we have one last question for you. Uh, tell us about your current projects that you're working on right now.
0: Oh, so my, um, I keep working on the sea, I'm trying to look for new sources and new materials. And uh, one project that I have is the, um, is the role of fish as divine animals. So um, I'm, I'm finding material on that. I mean, I found material. I'm trying to put it together. Because, again, when we talk about animals and the sacred, you always think about land-based animals, right? And uh, in Japan, of course, there are, I mean, fish is crucial, and there are a lot of fishes that are part of rituals or uh, de- divini, uh, sorry, deified and, um, and you know, things like that. So this is one. The other one is my ongoing project on uh, the Japanese imperial um, uh, music, uh, Gagaku, and um, especially i working on um, cultural history, one particular instrument, the show, where I try to, sh- you know, see the connections between materiality and immateriality, between like human intervention and and um, limitations uh, caused by the, by the nature of the instrument itself. So that will be a kind of a, you know, explore- development of my early work on, on materiality. uh, and the sacred
1: thank you it's uh, you always have really exciting projects going on so i'm sure our listeners will also be looking forward to them well thank you so much for
0: thank you you're very kind
1: (laughs) thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show today well i really enjoyed this edit volume
0: thank you thank you